This morning we're going to talk about the Tabernacle of David. Everybody go, woo! Okay. Tabernacle of David. So much fun. Okay, King David, I'm just gonna, we're going to review the Bible story of King David. You know this well. David, as a boy, he was born into a family of how many brothers? Eight, all right? Born into a family of eight brothers. And uh, when King Saul was rejected by the Lord, the Lord sent Samuel to his household in order to anoint the next king. Where was David when Samuel came to, to uh, who, was, who was David's father, by the way? Anybody can tell me? Jesse. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and when he gets to Jesse's house, he, he goes down, seven brothers. No, not you. No, not you. No, not you. He goes down the brothers, and finally he gets to the end of the seven brothers. He's like, uh, it's none of these guys, Jesse. Like, what? was my prophetic word wrong, or what, what's going on? Where was David? He was out tending sheep, right? So we know the story is that, that the Lord comes. Okay, the Lord did not anoint David to be the next king because of his poli-sci degree, political science. He didn't anoint David to be the next leader, governmental leader of the nation because he was a really good businessman. And he really, like, he, why? Why, why did God anoint David to be the next king? What do you think? Somebody shout it out. He wanted to because God wanted to. What do you think that he, was, he found in King David? Upon what merits? His heart. Anybody else want to add to that? God wants to challenge us. All right, here, I'm going to tell you why I think God chose King David. We're going to build the biblical history a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses is giving his last words to Israel before he's going to walk up into the mountain. The Lord takes him, and then right after that, Joshua leads the charge into the promised land. Deuteronomy 12, Moses' last words to Israel Moses tells the people this. When you go into the promised land, look for the place that the Lord desires to dwell. There you should go and you should worship. Do not just worship the Lord under any spreading tree or any high place, but look for the place where God desires to dwell. And that is the place that you should go to worship. Well, Joshua generation goes in, they conquer the promised land. Eventually, all the 12 tribes, they get their inheritance. Meanwhile, the Ark of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, is kind of floating around Israel from place to place. At one, and four generations later is the story of Hannah and Eli, the story of Samuel being born. Okay, four generations, you guys. We are down the line. And at one point, um, they decide they're going to take the ark of God's presence into battle against the Philistines, sort of as a good luck charm, when their hearts were far from God. And the Philistines capture the ark of God. 
and they hold, it, they hold God hostage. Now, God doesn't like to be held hostage. And, they, and the Philistines break out. They send the Ark of the Covenant from, from town to town. Five, five towns go through, the Philistine towns go through the Ark of the Covenant. And every town, the Philistines break out in like tumors and rats and all this stuff. And it's like, we don't want it. Send God to the next town. We don't want him. Send him to the next town. Eventually, they sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel on a cart. Well, when the Philistines initially captured the Ark of the Covenant, the word got back to Eli, the priest, that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Glory of God, had been captured. And he fell over backwards in his chair and died. And there's a child that was born around that same time, and the child was named Ichabod. The glory has departed Israel. Here we go. Four generations. All the 12 tribes of Israel had come into the land of their inheritance. And the one that made it possible, the hand of God that had blessed the conquest of the new world. So they were going in to take the land of their inheritance. The God that made it all possible. He was the only one out. Everyone else was in, but God had yet found the place where he desired to dwell. You guys have been waiting for a promise for a really long time. And the longer you wait, the more painful it gets. I call it the ache of time. It's been 14 years, God. The ache of time. Four generations later, God is still looking for the place that he desired to dwell. He's not, everybody else is homesteading. God's still homeless. Saul falls into disobedience. God is looking to anoint the next king. Who do you think he's looking for? He's looking for a man, young or old, that is going to have the nerve to make his presence the central issue of his even governmental administration as king. God's looking for somebody that's going to bring him into where he desires to be, the center most place in Jerusalem, in Israel. He anoints a boy. Because at this point, it has nothing to do with his political or even his, his conquest of skills as a warrior to lead the army. At this point, it's just merely about his heart for God. He finds a boy out in the hills of Bethlehem with his harp that has learned to make the Lord his shepherd, that has learned the secret that Anthem learned about a week ago. God's spirit dwells in praise. He anoints David, and then, da and then God has the great challenge of making a king out of a boy. And for the next many years, David goes through many trials, goes through many persecutions. At one point, Saul is hunting him down. But God's working on him, and he's turning a boy into a king. Some may see a shepherd boy, but God may see a king. I don't know what God has in store for each one of your lives. But even when your life feels full of ordinary, humdrum, another day gone to school, 
God may see one that is going to change a nation. Who knows what God has in store for each one of you. This is David, the humdrum of being a shepherd. He grows up knowing the Lord. Then he has this battle with Goliath. I've heard somebody suggest that David's courage fighting Goliath was that he knew that he had a prophecy over his life that he would be king. Now, okay, so, so Samuel anointed Saul to be king, and he became king. There is a record here. So if Samuel comes and anoints you to be king, you're probably pretty sure that it's going to happen, right? Samuel's got a pretty good track record as a prophet. In fact, he was like the only seer of his day. He had a spirit of revelation on him. It's like the word of the Lord was rare in those days, it says in Scripture. Not many people had visions or heard from God. But yet Samuel was a seer. He knew it all. And he anointed David. So I heard someone suggest that David's courage to fight Goliath was that he had a prophecy over his life, so he knew he could not die. <laughs> I'm not king yet, so all right, let's do this. Let's test the, test the prophetic word. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, but he goes out there with a sling and a stone, and by the supernatural hand of God, Goliath falls to the ground. But this David, he's a scary kid. He's not a measured pacifist Mennonite. He, okay, I can say that because I grew up. We were told, we were told to be, you know, you know, calm, cool, and collected. You know, don't be too radical. And uh, I don't know what happened to me. Anyway. <laughs> David cut the head of Goliath off with a sword, and he paraded it around Israel. He's carrying Goliath's dead head around. Like, I don't know, the way I see it is I see him, like, carrying it in a wheelbarrow. Because Goliath was a big deal, you know? Like, he was a big guy. So I don't know if he carried it around in a wheelbarrow or, like, in a sack over his shoulder or if he carried it by his hair. I don't know. But this kid was a scary dude. As a child, I'm like, duh, what do you do with a dead body? You know, but I guess when it was a Philistine, he decided it was, it was a trophy. I want the head of Roe v. Wade. Man, this Goliath. Um, anyway, God began to make a king out of a boy. Eventually, David did become king. And he was anointed king, and for the first seven years, he ruled in a town called Hebron. He became king when it was at age 30. From age 30 to 37, he ruled from Hebron. But then he began to realize, he began to spot this place called Jerusalem. And at that point, that area of Israel was still inhabited by the Philistines. The Joshua generation didn't get it done. They were told to annihilate everybody and take no prisoners. They didn't do it. They made some of them their slaves. They didn't finish the job when they had the anointing to do so. And so David comes in to power, and he conquers what's known as the land of the Jebusites. The Jebusites were a Philistine people. He conquers the land of the Jebusites, which is Jerusalem, he sets, him, he sets his capital up. He moves from Hebron at age 37. He moves to, uh, to Jerusalem. And then what's he do? He goes to find the Ark 
of God's presence. Can you imagine God? You've been homeless for four generations. While everybody else is homesteading, you're, you're out somewhere living in an apartment. <laughs> or a tent, whatever. And uh, you're being passed from place to place. You guys, I lived in Washington, D.C. In, in 10 years, I lived in eight different places. It's a painful thing to be moved around from place to place to place all the time, isn't it? Some of you guys may have grown up in military families or something, missionary families. Do, 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 all the time. Finally, King David goes to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he puts it on the back of an ox cart. The ox cart stumbles. The oxen stumbles, and the Ark of God's presence begins to fall off of the cart. And a guy named Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark. And what happens? He dies because of his irreverence. Now, if you're David, you're, you're wanting to do something good, with God, good for God, right? I'm, I'm convinced that, that this, um, this red-haired boy named David, this ruddy kid named David, was a very, it was a very emotional guy that lived out of his heart. I'm convinced of it. At this point, he's like, all right, Ark of the Covenant, you go to Obed-Edom's house. And he, like, goes and sulks, you know. Like, I was trying to bring God into the capital city to give him the place where he desires to dwell. And then Uzzah dies, and it ends in disaster. Well, what happens to Obed-Edom's house for the next three months? Nothing but blessed. Wow. Evidently, David's heart began to heal. Three months later, he tries again. Only this time, he goes back to the word of God. He goes back to the law. And he discovers, oh, the Ark of the Covenant is meant to be carried on poles by the priesthood. The lesson here is that God's presence wants to be in us and on us as people, not on things that were made by us. Right? Not on an ox cart that was made by us, but on us as living human beings. God's spirit wants to dwell in us, on us. So the priesthood is, is now carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, a second chance. And this time, David is making sacrifices the whole way. It's a bloody trail. If you read the story in Scripture it is a sacrificial bloody trail. What is it? Every seven steps or something. He's just another slaughter. Whew. Another slaughter. Okay, this is before we had the blood of the lamb, Jesus. And so, like, he's, he's sacrificing. According to the old covenant, he sacrifices. He sacrifices the whole way to the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem from Obed-Edom's house. And, uh, and then he's dancing wildly. As the ark is coming into to his capital. And we know that the ark of the covenant was close enough to his palace that it was within eyesight of his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter. Because his wife, Michael, looks down out of the, out of the, the palace window and she sees, she sees uh, David dancing wildly before the Lord in his ephod. Now, some people suggest that, that's, that he was like in his, his boxer shorts that he was dancing naked before God 
I, it doesn't actually mean that. An ephod was like a priestly garment. Um, and so kind of if I can try to challenge that thought, if you were ever told that David was dancing naked before God, he wasn't really dancing naked before God, but he was definitely disrobed out of his kingly garments. There's no doubt about that. But he was down to an ephod, dancing wildly before God, and Michael criticizes him in, in her heart and says, Like, why would a king be so undignified before his people? And King David says, for the Lord, I'll become even more undignified than this. Even more. A friend of mine, Andy Bird, he did, a, he did a, an Old Testament study on this era of history. And he found that it was the the custom at that time when one nation would, would battle another nation in war, uh, it was customary that, that the nation that conquered the other nation would take the, the conquered king, would strip him down, and as, they, as, as the victorious nation goes back home for the victory party, they would make the conquered king, the defeated king, dance naked in front of the the processional coming back home in victory. And Andy suggested, and I think it's really good, that perhaps David was saying, listen, I may be king, but I serve a king, and that king has conquered my heart. And I might be king of Jerusalem, but I'm saying, no, you are the Lord. I will follow the Lord. I have been conquered by the Lord, and I am his as he's dancing before the ark of God's presence leading into Jerusalem. The ark of God comes into Jerusalem. David puts it underneath a tent right near his palace. And then 1 Chronicles records that he hired 4,000 musicians. I want, our, I want our hearts and our minds to kind of catch up, to try to visualize 4,000 people. How many people went to your high school? How many people, I, I, I mean, 4,000, how many people fit in here? 250, 300? If the place was packed, and then you, like, take that times, like, 15 or something. Like, 4,000 musicians and 288 singers. And he put them in watches continuously, day and night. Their job was simply to minister to the heart of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Around the ark of God's presence in David's tabernacle, as it's now known, these 4,288 musicians and singers would minister the heart of the Lord. Furthermore, three times a year, all of Israel would assemble into Jerusalem for a week during the feasts to celebrate God. Is it any wonder that the golden years of Israel's history to this day is the reign of David? Jerusalem to this day is known as the city of David, Bethlehem being known as the town of David, where he was born, as well as Jesus was born there. If you go to Jerusalem to this day, you'll get there and you look on the coins and there's a harp. Like one of the symbols of 
Israel is David's harp <laughs> to this very day, right? And the, 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 on Israel's flag is this, the blue star that's known as the Star of David. To this day, the reign of David is the golden years of Israel's history. Is it any wonder? It's because David fulfilled the dream of God. When you go into the promised land, look for the place where the Lord desires to dwell. And there, go and worship. He brought God into God's inheritance. Not, not just David first had God central in his heart. Where he desires to dwell. The, the deepest desired dwelling place of God is us. But then from that, on a national level, David hosted God's presence in Jerusalem where he desired to dwell. And to this day, the geopolitical landscape of the whole world revolves around one hill. That one hill. All of Iran, Syria, all that stuff is because of that one hill that God has chosen to be his dwelling place, right? But if we're honest, there's a spiritual war going on around our life every day for this hill. For the hill of who will sit central in our lives. When we have that choice to make, God or myself, who's going to be on the throne? And the devil's always there to tempt us. This is why Jesus instructed us to pray, uh, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Oh, come on. Don't you want to sit on that throne again? No, Jesus. He will sit on that throne. And this is King David. So it's interesting, a couple of little things, just fun things, fun facts about David's tent in Scripture, David's tabernacle, as far as in the Old Testament. David had 24 watches. They, they actually cast lots to decide what time of day, like which watch would be theirs. And so they cast lots for this. And there was, there's actually 20, he had 24 watches in scripture, if you count it. And the 24th went to, boom. And um, the 24th lot fell this thing. And so from there, they, they set up their watches. It is highly probable, now this isn't a scriptural truth, but I'm just speculating with you guys a little bit just because it's fun. It's highly probable that King David was the first person on the earth to ever separate a day into 24 equal segments of time. So when you look at your watch, oh, it's Benaniah's watch. Oh, it's Obedita's watch. You know, like um, 24 families or groups of people tended to the Lord. And their job was not to create a great worship concert for all the people of the town to come to and say, wow, that's a great worship team. Their job was simply to minister to the Lord. That's it. It was just for God. It wasn't for people. If people wanted to come and worship God with them, yes. But it wasn't, you know, these days, if you want to have a gathering for God, it's like, okay, we want to get the right worship leader, the right speakers, and you kind of put together the flyer. And there's a sense of, like, trying to, you want to try to attract people to this place of ministry with the Lord. That wasn't the point. The point for David was simply, I want to attract God. I want to minister to the heart of the Lord. I was just... Um, some of you may have heard of Upper Room uh, House of Prayer in Dallas. This is how I fight my battles, those guys. I was just with Michael Miller a couple weeks ago. And, he, and, and at the Genesis moment, 
of that movement like 10 years ago before anybody knew of them, um, basically they made a choice as a small group of people, handful of people, like 10 or something. They made a choice of we just want to be attractive to God. We're not looking to attract people. We simply want to be attractive to God, and we want to attract God, and then we'll just trust him from there. But he, he, said, he, he said, I started, it was me, he's like, it, was, it first started with me and an older lady. So Michael Miller, he might be younger than I am, I'm not sure. He's like, but for, for like two years, I would pray with this older lady, and every day she would, he, he was like, she would rock in the chair, and she would say, she would pray for marriages and musicians, marriages and musicians, marriages and musicians, and he said, so it's funny, he said a couple years later, I found myself doing 18 weddings in one year. He said, then furthermore, all of a sudden, songbirds started showing up at our door, and our house of prayer just started to grow, like, mysteriously. As, and then before you know it, we have, like, this is how I fight my battles, and all the amazing music that's coming out of Upper Room right now that's been a blessing to all of us, right? But the goal of all things is we simply want to be attractive to God. We want to host his presence. We want to host his spirit in our personal lives, in our families, in whatever we're doing in life. And King David, so God was looking for a king that would make his presence central. And King David came through for God big time. Big time. Then God made a covenant with David after all this. He made a covenant with David. David had it in his heart. He's like, man, but God, now you're in a, you're in a tent. I'm in a palace. I'm going to build you a house. And God's like, no, you've been a man of war. It'll be for your son to do, to do that. But I will make a covenant with you that one from your family line will always be on the throne. And through the house and line of David came Jesus, who is currently today, right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the affairs of man as our great high king. Psalms 2 says that he, the Lord, has installed his king on his holy hill. That's Jesus. It's first a prophecy. It was first a word about David. But now it's Jesus. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. David knew something, didn't he, you guys? I want to know God like David knew God. He did it. My friend, uh, I have another friend, Sean Foyt. Some of you may know him from his music, but he started this, this wave, this movement um, amongst young people maybe 15 years ago called The Burn. How many of you heard of The Burn? 24-7 Burn. Okay. And basically, like, the culture when I was a teenager of youth groups is we'd have these things called lock-ins. Have you ever been to a lock-in? You know, hopefully there's some pool tables, some ping-pong tables, maybe a bunch of arcade games and loads of pizza and Coke, and uh, maybe some Mountain Dew, because we were told that's a little bit more caffeinated. So, woo, let's have a, you know. And we, we had these, so we'd lock in all night. It was great fun, and, you know, it's awesome youth group. Sean began to run with this, this thing of the Tabernacle of David of, hey, what if we would make the vision of our youth group to host the presence of God? So rather than doing a lock-in, they would do all-night worship times. Because typically in a youth group, there's several people that knows how to play guitar or keyboard that can lead some songs. And they might not even be able to sing real well or lead very well. But why don't we just all night, we'll start at like 7 o'clock p.m. on a Friday night and go to 9 o'clock a.m. on Saturday morning. And we'll just, we're just going to burn for God. 
And uh, so they started doing it as a youth group. And then others started being inspired. Today, I don't know, they have hundreds, maybe thousands of burn chapters around the globe where once a month people are coming together to do a night watch just to burn for God. How many worship teams do you have here, Gabriel? Bunch of them. So it would be similar to, like, you guys deciding some weekend, you know what? We're not, we're not saying the whole student body needs to be in here at every hour, but we're just going to take our turn up on the stage, and we're just going to minister to God in song all night long, all day long, just for his pleasure, just to say we love you, Jesus. So that's what these youth groups would begin to do. My, my right-hand friend and compadre, his name's Ryan Montgomery, works with me with David's Ten in D.C., he was in one of these youth groups where suddenly the youth pastor said, hey, I think we should do one of these things called a burn. We're going to burn for God all night long. So they get up there. They had their chord charts, and, and they, you know, they're, they're singing their songs. And about 12 o'clock at night or 1 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, um, youth pastor Chris, he walks up to the stage. He's like, you know, guys, I just feel like God has more for us. And he takes their three-ring binder of chord charts and songs, and he just closes it. He's like, I just want you guys to just keep playing your music, but just sing out of your heart whatever you want to sing to the Lord. And, of course, there's the waiting, and there's the awkwardness of, like, there's the insecurity. What are we going to do? How do we do this? And finally, one of them began to sing. And it was like something broke open in the heavenlies. Eventually, there was this worship team called Awaken Wells that was formed out of that. And they became a great firebrand of revival amongst the youth and young adults in the D.C. region. But it all started that night when they decided to turn their lock-in into a David's tent for a night. It all started when they decided we just want to attract God. We just want to be a blessing to him. We want to wait upon him. We want to minister to the heart of the Lord. In song, as David did, knowing that he inhabits our praises. He loves it. And then in the middle of the night, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sing our own hearts out to God. And you know, it's not about being poetic. It's not about making it rhyme. You know, in the infant stages where you're just kind of cracking into a new place, all you got to do is just sing. It doesn't even have to be a really cool, catchy tune. Just sing your heart out to God. He loves your pure, raw affections. And he inhabits that place simply to minister to the heart of the Lord. So David's tent in Washington, D.C. is to be an expression of our heart as the United States Big C Church of America to come together to say, Jesus, you are central in our nation. And our nation's culture might not be there yet. And so right now, we might still be prophesying to the future. But we believe that we serve a God of revival. We believe that if he is lifted up, that he will draw all men to himself. We believe that God's presence is attractive. That Jesus, we know, he is the most beautiful, attractive, smashingly amazing being in the whole universe. And when his spirit is poured out, he will draw all people to himself. Another one of my empty pot prayers is, God, I know that you're there. 
We've seen so many miracles at David's tent, you guys. People being healed, delivered, set free. Um, one of the greatest miracles is the fact that the song is still going. Like, where do these people come from? Our staff is like 20 to 25 people big. And yet somehow or another, there's worship teams coming in from all around the nation constantly to keep this flame going. And I'm like, where do they come from? I don't know this amount of people. They're coming out of the woodwork. This is a miracle that God is providing even the people as living sacrifices to bring the offering that he can send his fire on. Like, he's provided it all, right? And this is a miracle that this is happening. And yet... There's still a groaning in my heart. Thank you, Jesus, but we want more. There's many days where there's so many empty chairs there. And people will walk by and they'll look in, they'll hear the music, and they keep walking by. And I'm like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I've read the revival history stories where the presence of God falls on a town so much so that people are, they will, they'll get healed just driving by the church where God's spirit is being poured out. Right? We've heard these stories, and like, God, it is not okay that they're able to just walk by and not encounter your presence. And so we're contending every day for more of your spirit, God. We're going to praise a little more. We're going to sing a little louder in the presence of man. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep going, right? That God will do this and that, that, God, that, that God would raise up a generation. We believe also it's an intercession, that God will raise up a generation that will make his presence the first thing. Ministry to the heart of the Lord. Um, how this worked out in my own life, you guys, before I even knew the Bible story. Like, okay, we're told like about David and Goliath and Joshua and the giant pickle and whatever. And as we're going through like Sunday school and, and as young people, like well, there's a certain set of Bible stories as, as youth and young adults and, as, and even as children that were taught in the churches of, of the whole world, right? But somehow or another for me, and maybe this is the case for you too, growing up in the Mennonite church, Nobody ever told me about the tabernacle of David. Like, to get an accurate picture of what the reign of David actually looked like, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. In addition to the musicians and singers, he had 25,000 people administrating the house of the Lord. That's as many people as work in our United States Pentagon for the, for the military David had 25,000 people back of the house facilitating 4,288 singers simply to minister to God's presence day and night. This is what the reign of David actually looked like as a nation. And somehow or another, growing up in grade school, in Sunday school at Hershey's Mennonite Church, I never was told that peanut butter and jelly Sunday school version story of the tabernacle of David. It just somehow missed me, right? And yet, as a young man before I even really knew the Bible story. God did something in my heart, you guys. I can't explain it, but, there, but I learned how to play guitar on a whim. Probably it was the Holy Spirit. I, wanted, like, I, w I was at some sort of a youth conference worshiping, and I came out of the conference, I'm like, I want to do this at home in my bedroom. Like, I need to learn how to play guitar. So I learned, pick, found a guitar, got a chord, a chord chart, and I just learned how to, to play a couple chords, and I began to worship in my, in my room. Um, over time, I find myself, I'll find myself out in fields in the middle of nowhere, worshiping Jesus. Um, there was one night in Texas, all my, Holly had just, you know, not worked out so well. And, and all my friends back in Pennsylvania, I don't know what the deal is with Lancaster County, but they all get married young. And they're all married for a couple years now. And, you know, I go home and there's like 
me and my three buddies that were from high school that we're all hanging out, and it's the seven of us hanging out because they all have their wives with them. And, you know, and I get back, and I'm like, all right, Jesus, you're my bridegroom. Every romantic bone in my body, I am going to pour it out on you. So I put on my best suit, and I, I went to town. It was a seven-mile drive to the close. It's kind of like here. It's like you have to drive pretty far to get somewhere. So I, this was in Texas. I drove seven miles to get to the, Locust Brookshire's grocery, the local Brookshire's grocery store, and I bought a dozen roses for Jesus. And then I got, I got two chairs, chair for me, chair for Jesus. And I went to, to this Texas back road where there was like this fence and there was like this prairie grass field with like a little knob out in the middle of the field that had a tree there. And it was kind of like this cool, and I'm like, so I parked my car along the side of the road, jumped over the fence, and I trotted out with my guitar in the one hand and my, my, my songbook. And uh, I did have a songbook with me. And, uh, and two chairs and the dozen roses in my other hand. And I walk out to the, to the middle of the field. It's right about sundown. And I put one chair there for Jesus, one chair for me. And I sat down there at the foot of this tree. I put, I put the roses down kind of at the bottom of the tree. And I just, Jesus, I just, I love you, Jesus. Jesus, you are the love of my life. And this isn't about me being married to a human ever. I'll be the Apostle Paul if you want me, Jesus. <laughs> We're always so dramatic, right? <laughs> and so at least I am. And I, but Jesus, I'm, I love you, Jesus. And I'm, I just know that in that moment, Jesus was loving every moment of this, you know. I'm just pouring out my heart to Jesus. And uh, I put the roses there. I sit up in the chair. And I just worship for like the next hour and a half or two hours. The only song that I can remember for sure that I sang that night in my memory was, uh, some of you might know it, it's an old song, pardon me, but Jesus, the lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go, you've taken me from the miry clay, you set my feet upon a rock. And now I know that I love you, I need you, and though my world may fall, I will never let you go, oh my Savior, oh my closest friend, oh I will worship you until, I just poured out my heart to the Lord. <clears throat> and as I did, the sun went down and it got dark. And this is just a couple weeks after 9-11, the towers being hit in New York City. So the whole nation was a bit on edge. And as I'm walking back to my car, the whole sky from east to west to north to south turns bright rose red at like 10 o'clock in the evening should be dark and black with the stars shining in Texas. It is bright rose red. Jesus, you just took my roses and painted the sky red. I thought I was having some sort of an open-eyed encounter vision that only I could see, you know? Spirit of revelation had come upon me and that, that Jesus was responding. I drive back to the guy's dorm at the missions base 
and all the men are standing outside on the lawn, staring at the sky with their mouths dropped wide open. And there was a fear that came over all of us. Not me. I knew what was going on. Because it was right after 9-11, and there was this big scare about, like, chemical warfare. And, like, if you see a shooting star in East Texas, it's not a sign from God. It happens all the time. It's like, oh, it's snowing outside in, in outside Elam. It's a sign. <laughs> Maybe. Right? Here's the thing. The sky doesn't turn red in East Texas at 10 o'clock at night. Everyone was freaking out. The next, so I went out and spent some more time with Jesus. Like, Jesus, he took my roses and painted the sky red. The next day at lunch, I stayed up late that night with Jesus. It was like I got my first kiss and I didn't know what to do. I was, my heart was just pounding in love with the Lord. Just, I was Twitter baited with Jesus. And uh, the next day, I'm like wiping the sleep out of my eyes, and I show up at the, at the cafeteria for lunch, and I'm sitting there around the table, and everyone's talking, and one of the guys goes, yeah, I, I was watching the news this morning, and the Weather Channel said that it was, uh, the sky turning red last night, everyone, everyone was talking about it. It was a big deal. They said it was a phenomenon similar to Aurora Borealis. I thought, how far is Texas from the North Pole? You guys, Jesus responds to our love. I call that my Abrahamic moment when I got a calling. And the Lord spoke to me coming off of that season. He said, Jason, if you'll just keep loving me like that, our love relationship can be a banner over all of America. A covering of my grace. If you'll just stay in love with me. And really, that is the mandate over each one of our lives. If we will just stay in love with Jesus, let every act of obedience be love-motivated. If we'll just stay in love with Jesus, we can shake whole nations. We can change the world. And maybe we won't shake a whole nation, but we'll shake the world for one person that will shake the nations. You never know. Hannah simply went to the core, to her empty pot, and because she did, God gave her Samuel. And Samuel became the prophet to anoint David that fulfilled God's dream and led Israel back to God. Isn't that awesome, you guys? I don't know what the Lord has for each one of you, but I know this. His plan is love. His plan is to encounter your heart so deeply that you're Twitter baited with God. And maybe, honestly, you're like, empty pot time. I'm not there, God. I don't have feelings of affection for you. Well, let me tell you, just keep reflecting on his virtues. Keep reflecting on his character. Keep doing a personality test on God. And guess what? The feelings will come. Your heart will begin to burn for God. King David, one of David's greatest hits. I'm going to end here in a minute. Psalms 18 is a warrior psalm. It's, it's, the, it's written by the kid that held Goliath's hand, head in his hands. Like, it's a scary psalm. God, you take my enemies. And... You turn them into dust before me, and you blow them away in the wind. You've trained my hands for battle and my fingers for war. With you, God, I can scale a wall. And it's like WWF Psalm, psalm you know? It's like big time. David's throwing down in that psalm as a warrior. 
You want to know what the opening line of that warrior psalm is? I will love you, Lord, my strength. Opening line is, I love you, Lord, my strength. I love you, Lord, my strength. I love you, Lord, my strength. And then from there, from a heart of love for the Lord, he says, with you, I can scale a wall. With you, I can believe that I'm going to lead North Korea back to Jesus. With you, I'm believing you for Iran. I'm believing you, Jesus. I'm going to see the day where Muslims will no longer worship Allah from the Temple Mount, but Israel will worship Yeshua from the Temple Mount. Because I love you, Lord, my strength. And all I got to do is stay in love. If I just stay in love with the Lord, and if I make him the first thing, everything else will fall into place. Amen. So God, I just want to thank you that you call us to first love. We've been praying a lot from the church of Ephesus. And the letter to Ephesus in the book of Revelation is don't forget your first love. Lord, we just come back to you, Lord. We come back to you and just say, God, we just want to love you. We just want to love you, Lord. We want to be a flower in your garden of the earth that you could take delight in. We want to be attractive to you, Jesus. And whether it's me out in the middle of a field or whether it's one of these students in a stairwell or in a closet filled with chairs, God, we want to pour out our love on you. In the secret place where no one else is looking, oh, Lord, we want to pour out our love on you. Like oil upon your feet, like wine for you to drink, God, we want to pour out our love on you. We want to wait upon you. We want to fill your wine glass again and again with the oil, with the wine of our love. We want to anoint your feet again. We want to wait upon you constantly, Lord. God, I thank you so much that, that you are worthy. You're worth it. God, I thank you that you are the most beautiful, attractive being in the whole universe. And I want to thank you that, when, that taking time to worship, it's not any harder than taking time to look at a beautiful sunset. Our hearts say, yes, you are beautiful. Taste and see that the Lord is, Lord is good. Taking time to worship you, to minister to you, is not any harder than eating a donut. Because, God, you're sweeter than everything, Lord. Your love is sweet like honey to me. Your name is sweet. God, thank you for stirring our hearts. God, we want to be like David. If our hearts aren't there yet, Lead us in intimacy. I need you to take me by the hand and take me into the, your garden again, Jesus. This coming year, I need you to lead me around your garden of your delights once again, Jesus. Show me the beautiful things about who you are and show me your beautiful ways again. God, keep stirring my heart to love. Let my heart never get dull or, or cold. Help us all to be faithful to the end, that we would love you with a loyal love with a deep loyalty and a deep faithfulness to you, God. We love you so much.